Welcome to the No Plateau Podcast. For stroke and brain injury survivors, their caregivers, and the therapists helping them to break boundaries in their recovery journey. Hosted by Henry Hoffman, a certified occupational and clinical therapist, and Pete Duran, a certified podcast host. CPH, look it up. This podcast is intended to supplement stroke and brain injury survivors' recovery journey. Therefore, all content affiliated with this podcast is for informational purposes only and is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Hey, everyone. Welcome to another episode of the No Plateau Podcast. I'm solo today. Our co-host, Henry Hoffman, is under the weather, but I'm honored to be joined by uh, Chris in Austin and hoping that you guys can share some of your story with our audience. I think this is a unique story. I met Chris and Austin Harrell at the Belief Stroke event where they both spoke to the audience. And frankly, I was moved by the story, moved by the success uh, Austin has shown uh, since his stroke and what he's doing today. And I thought it would be great for us to to share their story with the audience because I think it's a unique perspective of a stroke survivor as well as a caregiver in their story. And I think uh, some of the research, Chris, you did was really compelling. And I think some of the findings you found would be great for our audience. So welcome to the program, gentlemen. Thank you. We're glad to be here. Great. Chris, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to kick it over to you first and have you kind of share what Austin experienced and how you guys uh, got through that and definitely touch on the liberty aspect. My son plays soccer. We've talked about this. One played at NC State, one plays at Elon. So I watched my son play soccer at, at Liberty, Austin, and you went to school there. It's a it's a fantastic place. So I want to understand a little bit more about that as we get into the story. So Chris, I'll turn it over to you. It was a typical like, July day here in North Carolina. I worked from home and had been doing so for the last 20 some odd years. But uh, I went into the kitchen uh, to see what was I was going to have for lunch and looked outside, saw Austin out in the backyard. Uh, juggling and, and, and doing things initially. I looked back up uh, shortly after I figured out what I was going to eat and uh, saw him holding his uh, head with his hand. And I thought that was, that looks kind of odd. So I went out and I said, Hey, Austin, what's going on? And he says, Dad, yeah, I have a really bad headache. And I, I said, well, did you fall and hit your head? And he goes, no. And I said, well, you think you're going to be all right? And he goes, yeah, I think so. Walked back into the house, went back to the window, looked out again, but he was gone. And went back to the to the door to go back outside to see what was going on and see where he was. And he was right there, met me at the door. But when I opened up the door, he looked right through me like I wasn't even standing there. And I knew that, you know, I said, hey, buddy, what's going on? And he just looked at me and I opened up the door, let him walk on in. He put his hands on our kitchen uh, island and I could tell that he was there, but he he wasn't responding to me at all. He was sweating. Uh, I kept saying, hey, what's going on? And uh, no response. And uh, he was standing there kind of starting to lose his balance. And I was like, wow, what's going on? And I, I sat him down in a chair, was real close to the island there. And I saw his arm drop down, uh, his right arm drop down to his side. And he used his left arm to pick it up and put it back in his lap. There's still no response from him. He was not responding to any questions. He wasn't even looking at me. And even if he did look at me, it was like I wasn't there. It was like he was looking through me. Something was going on in his head that was so intense that he just could not articulate any response whatsoever. So that's kind of where things started. Uh, I, as soon as I saw him drop his arm and, and pick it up and put it back in his lap, you know, and the fact that he wasn't responding, I'm like, this is serious. I need to call 911. Mm-hmm. And that's what I did. 
and tried to explain to them what I was at least observing. And uh, they dispatched pretty quickly. We have a EMT site not too far from our home. And they got here very quickly, which was great. But he had not changed at all by the time they got here, walked him inside. They started talking to him. He would not respond to them. And they just started taking vitals and things like that, did an EKG on him. And they started asking me questions. It's like, you know, well, you know, what had he been doing beforehand? And I kind of told him he had been outside you know, playing soccer and working out. And uh, that was about it. But they didn't indicate any potential stroke at that point in time. They were just concerned because of his inability to express himself, not responding to them. I think his heart rate was up. I think the EKG was was irregular, but it wasn't it wasn't like telltelling as far as what was really going on. So they whisked him off. My wife met us uh, going out the door basically as the EMTs were here and taking him out. And so she just hopped right into the ambulance and went off with him. We didn't really get to talk much. Uh, I had called her to tell her in between after having called the EMTs that. You know, is not doing good. I had to call EMTs. So there was no real conversation between us. At what point, Chris, did you, did, did a stroke cross your mind at this point? Well, yeah, I guess the first thing is being an athlete. You now, both Austin and I were athletes. I played college soccer. He'd been playing college. I mean, was hoping to play at Liberty and been playing all his life. So, you know, we had been under, you know, physical heat duress before, obviously, but this, this obviously looked like something well beyond that. I think I had had maybe heat stroke in my early days when I was playing. And so I kind of knew what that kind of looked like and felt like. But uh, what he was uh, demonstrating, it was beyond that. But I was just kind of, I guess, you know, hopeful as a parent, you know, maybe this is just a really crazy reaction to heat stroke. Sure. But, um, and, you know, that's, of course, what I was thinking as I was driving to the hospital after they had whisked him off in the uh, ambulance and, you know, walking into the to the ER room, uh, find him in a room and Susan was in there with him and he's still not responding. And so, yeah. Two things as a former college athlete, a parent of a couple, you know, D1 soccer players, I was uh, traveling with my son's academy team in Florida mm-hmm. and one of their best players suffered heat stroke. Oh, well. It was very difficult to see. He, he kind of, same thing. He had similar reactions, fell over, couldn't kind of lost the ability to speak. Mm-hmm. Now, when they got him in the hospital, they pumped him full of two IV bags and he was back to normal in minutes, right? It was, they, they kind of knew what happened. In fact, he wanted to play the next day. We're like, that's not happening. <laughs> right. And I'm sure Austin could relate to that feeling as well too. So yeah, you ended up graduating from school. How do you feel today versus how you felt, you know, right when it happened? Well, I felt relief. I had just graduated from Liberty last May. I am so excited to be done. Um, <laughs> uh, I could read out loud to take classes, online classes to take to Liberty. Chris, why don't you share what Austin had to do to get through school? Because I think that's really important. And by the way, maybe brief us on what Austin's condition was post-stroke and then kind of where he went today and then how he got through school. Yeah. So, I mean, uh, immediately after his stroke, I mean, you know, he, he was, like I said, not able to respond at all. Uh, but uh, shortly after he got to the hospital, we started to learn, I guess, the, the gravity of what was really going on with him. He was not able to move his arm, right arm, right side, really at all. Uh, wasn't able to stand up, wasn't able to walk, obviously, had no real stability whatsoever. Uh, we were not aware initially of the severity of his vision cut. He lost a right peripheral vision in both eyes. That was pretty substantial from the standpoint of going forward. 
hopefully be able to be more independent and be able to drive someday. He, he lost that ability. Sure. The ability not to be able to speak, obviously, was, was a huge concern to us. We were not aware of what that was called initially. And we later on found out that was called aphasia mm-hmm. and what that involved, you know, the loss of his language, the loss of ability to understand what people were saying to him. Mm-hmm. For some people, it's the ability to even be able to read, to write. He mainly lost his ability, obviously, to vocalize, express himself, understanding what people were saying to him. His ability to, just to read and to write was still kind of intact initially. Uh, so that gave us, you know, some some great hope, obviously. But initially, you know, it seemed like he was not able to communicate to us at all. So that was troubling. We went down to Atlanta was really where we began to to have to grapple with what was really in front of him. I mean, at Duke uh, after the craniotomy, and they started trying to figure out whether or not he could swallow and eat foods, uh, whether or not he'd have to have a thickener in his liquids to be able to swallow and not have to worry about aspirating, uh, which causes a whole host of problems. Uh, you know, we were very blessed that he was able to eat. Uh, had carried food initially, uh, but he graduated up to you know, regular food like you and I eat every day pretty quickly once we got down to Atlanta. But we had to use a thickener in his uh, fluids for a, a probably about a month or two, I guess, after we got out of uh, Duke and we're, were involved in the inpatient down at uh, Shepherd Center. What was the impetus for going to the Shepherd Center and how long was the transition between Duke and getting down to Atlanta? Four months. Yeah, he Austin had a stroke on J- July 22nd. Okay. And we headed down to uh, Shepherd Center probably about two and a half weeks after that. I mean, he had his uh, craniotomy uh, second day after a stroke, uh, okay. we had to move around from hospitals. We went to an initially a small community hospital. Within the, you know, the first couple of hours, they realized the situation was way too big, but they had been the ones initially to identify the stroke. You know, they did a CT, saw the stroke, recommended TPA, which they administered. We were kind of told by the doctor there that this would, would be something that would potentially, hopefully, save off even increased brain uh, damage potentially. Okay. So we signed off on that, uh, but it really didn't make any changes for him, unfortunately. Uh, and, but they moved him to a uh, big wake uh, here in Raleigh. And even once we were there, he was only there maybe about 24 hours. They did more assessments on him, but his brain swelling became more increased. And uh, when they started talking to us uh, about what, the on-call neurologist there was willing to do or what, how, what his approach was for stroke victims. Uh, he did not believe in doing craniotomies. And so that as a parent, that scared me. I was like, well, wait a minute, you're taking something off the table that could potentially you know, save my son's life or lessen the severity of the outcome. Uh, because as a, you know, as a young man, you know, he didn't have as much room in his brain and his skull to uh, take on the five to six days of, potential swelling that was going to go on. Sure. And so we knew knew that it was vital to have that in our back pocket. So as soon as I was told that by the, the neuro staff there at, at Wake, I said, we've got to, you know, that's, that's not going to work. And they started saying, you know, we, we need to start considering uh, university hospitals like Duke or UNC because they'll, they'll do anything and everything. And so, you know, they went out to find who was had a bed open uh, Duke came back pretty quickly, and they life flighted him up to Duke. And so uh, we had to then drive from uh, Raleigh up to, to 
uh, to Durham. Uh, we actually had a good friend do that because we were we were frazzled at that point. I mean, sure. I really I just couldn't even imagine driving, you know, with yeah. knowing that he just took off in a helicopter, having to watch him get innovated, which was very difficult to watch as an apparent. Yes, it is. His airways were fine. It's just that they have to do that kind of thing when they take somebody on a life flight. And I actually saw him and fighting it because uh, he was actually trying to fight them when they were doing that. He, his right arm came up to try to stop them from placing the air passage and, you know, into his, into his uh, throat. Wow. But, and so, you know, by seeing that and had not seen his right arm move that entire time, just, you know, it, just, it scares you, you know, you see something like that and you're just like, well, you knew he was frightful at that time. Sure. His brain was even able to do something at that moment that it didn't, wasn't able to do later on. But anyway, we got up to Duke and uh, we expected to walk in and, and hopefully have a couple of uh, possibilities of things that they might be able to do to address the brain swelling because it had increased to the point where you know they were getting very concerned about it, even at, at, at Wake. Uh, they had tried to do an MRI on him, but he was not calm enough to even go into an MRI machine. Mm. He, he was just moving too much. And so they weren't even there really to take this type of assessment that they probably really needed to to see what was going on. But by the time we got to Duke, uh, things had gotten much, much worse. Uh, the pressure on his brainstem had gotten to the point where they they, they basically met us in, in a meeting room uh, with a neuro doc telling us, you know, your son's got 15 minutes to live. We need to do immediate craniotomy on him or he's going to die. So, you know, <laughs> that kind of took, takes the breath out of you as a parent to get told that. You, know, you went there expecting that maybe they'll try this or try that. Maybe his condition will start to improve. And here we were. With an even, you know, what seemed even greater risk of life at that point in time. Yeah. Just listening to this, uh, my stomach has been sinking for the last 20 minutes anyhow, trying to absorb this. So you obviously gave permission to do the, the craniotomy. Yep. What happened? What was the next 24 hours like? Obviously, touch and go. When did you start to find out that there was that, that it worked and there was hope? What, what, what did that look like? It obviously took some time, obviously, you know, after a craniotomy, you know, me as a parent and uh, I'm a graphic artist, I'm very visual. And uh, the idea of walking into uh, the recovery room to see my son after that surgery, I had a very hard time. Yeah. I really couldn't bring myself to do it. Initially, my, my wife went back with a couple of our friends. We had some really incredible support uh, from our church and some really close friends. And uh, they went back initially with my wife and she came back and she said, Chris, he, he, he looks fine. And fortunately the, uh, the high school pastor was there and he said, I'll go back with you, Chris. And so I, you know, I had a hard time walking back there. It was a tough thing to do, but when I walked in there and saw him, you know, he looked, you know, I won't say angelic, but it, he looked like he was at peace, you know, that he wasn't fighting like he was previously because when he was at wake the night before, he was up all night pulling IVs and stuff out. They had to, you know, restrain his left hand because uh, he'd gotten so strong with his left arm, you know, he, he was just taking things out of him left and right. And my wife had watched that all night long. But uh, at any rate, uh, the reality was, you know, his brain had swelled so much, even after they had removed uh, the uh, bone, bone plate, that you couldn't even tell it was missing. You could only see the scar that was on his, on his head and the sutures, obviously, on his shaved head, which was hard to see him, too. And, but it just showed you how quickly uh, that brain had swelled, and that there really was no, nothing there. That, you know. So you're at Duke. You got through a very big initial scare. 
what was the what was the thought process for the next couple of weeks? And then when did uh, the facility in Atlanta become something that you guys started to consider? Once he got stabilized, and, uh, and unfortunately, too, when we got there, they were in transitioning of moving their ICU units actually to a whole new facility, brand new facility they had just be built, built there at Duke, which was really quite a godsend because, I mean, that the their original ICU was very dark. It, it just... It did not feel like a very uplifting place. Like there was going to be a transfer of recovery. There was no windows, no nothing. They moved us into a new wing and there were windows and it was an area where the family could actually stay with the patient much more easily than they could have at their, their uh, previous uh, ICU situation. I would say probably a week into it, they were starting to assess, you know, what his capabilities were. You know, they took him off the air assistance. He had, you know, still had airway passage assistance, but he did not need that. His, his, that part of his brain was not damaged uh, through the strokes. He was able to breathe on his own, which was a huge relief because you start to think about having to have a trach put in and all that stuff and, sure. and all that. Pretty soon, they started talking about rehab. They really only mentioned the separate Shepherd Center, to be honest with you. That's where they had sent the majority of their patients to from spinal cord, t- all types of different t- TBI situations. And so, you know, I had already myself started looking because I knew that was the next phase. But I found a video there at the Shepherd Center on a football player that was Austin's age. He was 18 years old. He had just signed to play for Clemson and he had a massive stroke. Wow. And he ended up there at the Shepherd Center and they were a real strong Christian family. So that really spoke to us. And I saw saw that story. and I was like, I felt like that was just God saying, this is where you need to take Austin. And so I didn't really question them on that. I knew there were other places in the country. Uh, but that seemed like that was the closest area, uh, I guess, proximity for us. Yeah. Uh, but getting them there, it became a little bit of an issue too, because insurance was being a little bit of a problem. They were going to have to life flight him from RDU to Atlanta. You know, he wasn't going to be able to be taken in, in an ambulance. So that's an expensive, you know, situation. Mm-hmm. Uh, but things finally worked out with that, and he got life flighted down there. I would say it was probably about two and a two and a, two and a half weeks after the stroke, uh, we got him down there to be in inpatient care. But when he walked in the door down there, he was in a wheelchair. He still had not said any any words. Oh, wow. Okay. No, no, no speaking at that point. Yeah. Okay. Oh, no, no, no speaking at all. And it really wasn't until we got down. Uh, I take that back. He, he did write us the, like, the word soccer. I have a photograph on my camera, uh, on my iPhone, that uh, he wrote some of the initial words. I think he wrote dad, he wrote soccer, might've been something else, but yeah, he was able to scribble that out with his left hand, mind you, mm-hmm. he was a right handed beforehand, uh, but was a great left footed soccer player. I, you know, kind of really impressed upon him. You, know, you need to be able to use both feet, you know? So he was amphibious or amb- ambidextrous as you, as you yep, absolutely. Uh, so that was an, an awesome thing for him. I mean, he even played tennis left handed, but he batted right handed. I mean, oh, this, my word. This kind of thing, when he was growing up, those kind of things he kind of did. So, you know, hindsight, I guess, obviously, it helped enabled him to transition to using his left hand as his predominant hand at that point in time. So when you got to the uh, the facility in Atlanta, what was your first interaction with the, with the, the staff there? How did, how did that go? They flew down. I got down there a number of hours after they got there because I had to drive down from Cary. I had to take all kinds of stuff, but they were great. They were there. They had a, t- a team. They basically assigned you to a team of an OT, a PT, a, a speech pathologist, mm-hmm. and of course your, your, your care doctor and mm-hmm. the nursing staff. So they pretty much met us that 
evening anyway, initially just to kind of introduce themselves. And then we got a, a full introduction to them the next day and kind of finding out, you know, what's Austin going to have to do every day. I mean, they, mm-hmm. even before they admitted and they had to assess to make sure that he could handle, you know, four to five hours a day of intense therapy. Sure. And uh, of course, you know, as a dad, you know, like, you know, is he going to make the team or are they going to pick him to take him down there? Cause if, if they weren't, then, then what do you do? You know, sure. What are your options if they, the rehab facility won't take your child. Right. And because of his age of being 18, that was a blessing from an insurance standpoint because uh, that was what that was going to be pretty much all covered and taken care of. Uh, so it wasn't going to be putting back a huge amount of cost back on us, that, which is what usually happens a lot of times to, to adults. Sure. Uh, so that was a, that was a great blessing. At what point did uh, Austin start to respond to the treatment and then be able to interact with you guys, whether it's verbally or in writing? Uh, and when did you start to see, see that reaction? Once he awoke and was basically taken off all, because they you know they put him in a, a drug induced coma initially uh, after his surgery. So there was a period of time where, you know, he was out, out, you know, they would bring him out every now and then. And I'll have to tell you, you know, the first time he actually responded to just a verbal you know, question, you know, the, the ICU nurses was just trying to give him, the, you know, give him the thumbs up, you know, and he hadn't done that the first couple of times. And we had just come out of a meeting with the doctor telling us that, you know, most likely your son's going to have to be institutionalized. I hope you guys understand that. I think they thought we were being too, even though we were, I don't know, I didn't feel like I was necessarily being upbeat, but I think they thought we were being too positive and they had to kind of set us down and say, hey, you guys need to understand the situation here. And I'm like, well, okay, <laughs> I agree. Maybe he, maybe that might be a possible outcome, but I also feel like that he could, you know, could recover. But at any rate, you know, we, we, we started to get smiles out of him. You know, he was like looking and said, at least you felt like you recognized, you know I mean? You know, Cause when someone can't communicate to you, you don't really know what sure. you're thinking, what's going on inside. We were able to get that before we got down to Atlanta. They hit it hot and heavy the next day. You know I mean? As soon as they're, they were ready to start therapy, they got into it you know, and they're starting to make assessments. And we were, meeting with uh, different folks there uh, as well, uh, then just kind of giving us more of the information on what was going to be going on for him and his stay down there. He started responding you know, relatively quickly. I mean, uh, he was able to walk out of a six-week, at six weeks, he was able to walk out of the Shepherd Center, and that was a huge, huge blessing. It's amazing. Uh, you know, he was wearing a helmet, and he had to wear a helmet the whole time because he was still missing that part of his skull. And In fact, he was without that until January of the next year. Yeah, so several months he had to wear a helmet. Oh. We had to be careful, and he had to wear a gait belt, and so we had to have, at least kind of keep a hold of him just in case if he was to lose his balance or whatever. You know, he had nothing protecting you know his brain other than that helmet. Sure, he responded pretty quickly with the walking, but the the speech was a very 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 slow burn thing, as well as his arm. And they were telling us that that would be that was to be expected. That usually the arm is one of the last things that even starts to show signs of movement at all. Okay, my vision was affected as well. I cannot drive since my stroke and I cannot see to the right. My vision improved, but still have a field of vision impairments. So yeah. Yeah. I can now speak, write, and understand uh, much better. Excellent. And and when you got back from Atlanta, what what was the transition to outpatient, and uh, and how how did you feel the level of care? Did it continue at the point where you were at Shepherd's, and when you went to outpatient, what was that like? Well, fortunately for us, uh, Shepherd's had a two step program. I mean, the, the initial was the six week, uh, six to eight week uh, inpatient. 
once we got out of that, they basically had accepted him to come down for what they call they call an outpatient. I mean, we weren't at our home. We were staying on site there, but we were getting up every day and driving off to their actual out, outpatient facility that they had there in Atlanta. So that, that was a pretty seamless transition initially because the same kind of story. You, you got assigned an OT and a PT and speech pathologist, and he had a music therapist. Uh, so he was there all day long. I would take him there first thing in the morning, drop him off, leave him there, go back, have lunch with them, and kind of hang out a little bit till the afternoon until he got released. So that, w- that went on for eight weeks. So we came back. We got, finally got back to Kerry for, for good uh, right before Thanksgiving that, that year after he had a stroke. In July. Were you working from Atlanta while you were down there, Chris, as, as much as possible? I was working sparingly. My wife uh, had an incredible job at SAS. And so that was who, work, who our, uh, our health insurance was through and everything. So I had, I, had, I mean, I had to scale back what I was doing. And you know, when you become a caregiver, and that was one of the requirements for Shepherd Center anyway, is that one of us had to volunteer to be the trained caregiver. Yeah. In case, because, you know, initially when you get there, you don't know what kind of things they're going to recover, what they're not going to be able to do. Right. Uh, So I had, I volunteered myself to do that. So I had to kind of step back a little bit from my, from my career. Uh, I had some really great clients that stuck with me and I actually did work from time to time when I was down there, but you know, I'll be honest, it was hard to focus. Oh, of course it was. To say the least. So, and even once we got back here, I, every day we were going to therapy. I mean, immediately, as soon as we got back, we, we had found a, a rehab outpatient facility here. It was right here in Cary, about three miles away from us. Uh, they had an incredible SLP, um, Mara Silverman, who actually was a specialist in aphasia. Mm-hmm. Yep. So that was, that was incredible. And she was working at this uh, rehab facility that that's what they focused on was stroke recovery uh, steps to recovery. And it was a husband and wife team and she was the uh, PT and they had some great OTs. And so we went there uh, every week, you know, three times a week for about three hours a day. Uh, so, I mean, we pretty much, we weren't doing it every day, but almost. Uh, so it was a pretty seamless thing. And how long did your insurance continue to support the treatment? I will have to say that they were uh, fantastic. They stuck with us uh, the entire time. That's amazing. We had my wife had to go to bat a few times, but for the most part, and I think a lot of it had to do obviously with his age. Sure. And he was still on our insurance and was going to be able to be up through age twenty six. Uh, so that was a huge thing. You know, he needed a lot of therapy. It was going to take a lot of work, and even our SLP Mara, she got us onto the idea of getting a team of uh, ladies to work with them. You know, they didn't have to be speech therapists. Uh, some of them actually had been a couple were teachers or just stay at home moms or, you know, had homeschooled their kids or whatever. But uh, once we got into a, a really good pattern of uh, speech therapy processes, they were coming in and meeting with them, you know, multiple times during the week. And you know, so he was getting that much more uh, therapy than what a typical person does with, you know, just going to a, a you know, a truly trained SLP. Because uh, she, she said, you know, we just need him talking, reading, writing, you know, doing all the modalities to try to recover as much as he can. So, Chris and Austin, I'm curious to hear your thoughts. One thing you mentioned, Chris, that was really important to me is that you received caregiver training. Yes. Right. And we've talked about this offline several times and how, you know, when you do transition into outpatient, the amount of time you're spending with a therapist flips to now you're spending that time with a caregiver in a similar role. And unless there's training, you didn't go to school for this. You didn't, no, no. you know, do this every day. So you're, you're learning. Right. I want to extend on that because I want to shift the conversation a little bit to 
you were a competitive athlete. Austin's competitive athlete. You kind of had this mentality, both of you, right? Yeah. Then Austin decides, you know, um, I want to go to school, <laughs> right? So you decide to enroll in Liberty. One of the things that resonated with me when you when Austin gave his talk was the fact that he had to read all these textbooks out loud. Yeah, became a huge component of his speech therapy. And you know, the, the, the big thing about rehab, it has to be meaningful. You know, you just can't be going there and, and doing reps. It's not about just doing reps. It's got to be meaningful reps. And and so we started, you know, his initial class. It was all done online. Mm-hmm. But, uh, you know, we thought, you know, we'll just give it a try. We'll t- take it for audit and see how he does. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, we, we, initially we had uh, started that summer, I guess, before he was supposed to, well, this, this was like a year past when he was supposed to actually have gone to Liberty to physically be there before he had a stroke. We had been reading the Magic Treehouse books out loud. He had sat down with his sister and they did that all through the summer. And that's just like, you know, he'd gotten very good at reading. We felt like his uh, ability to understand what he was reading was, was pretty good. So it's like, you know, let's take a class. We found an earth science class. And so we started that with Liberty. And he started doing so well with it that we were like, oh, I wonder if they'll let us take it for credit. And fortunately, they wouldn't because we were too far into it. <laughs> so we actually had to take the entire class all over again. And they went through it all over again. Uh, but, you know, the reading out loud was was a huge thing for him in helping his ability because he had apraxia in addition to having aphasia. Apraxia is, you know, your brain communicating with your tongue, you know, the sound to make to form words uh, and syllables. That was huge. So you got an associate's degree from Liberty. How long did that take? Seven years ago. Well, it took seven, yeah. Seven years. We started in 2015. Seven years. Yeah. Because it, uh, it was one class at a time. And, you know, and we had to take, they, you know, they package everything in eight weeks. Well, taking a class in eight weeks for somebody with aphasia, even, I don't think I could do a whole college class in eight weeks. No. But uh, we would take it for audit, and he would do the majority of the reading of the text, and they would have online discussion boards that they had to answer questions and stuff. And so for him to have to sit down and write and articulate ideas out for things like that, that, that almost took in a semester in and of itself. So we would do... First half of the semester was reading all the course content, and then the second half was basically spent doing all their uh, written requirements uh, for the class. And so that would take you know, two semesters for him. A six, it turned into sixteen weeks, basically. And uh, so, yeah, it was it was slow, but we got to the point eventually where he was almost doing two classes, you know, at a time. Well, it was a lot of work, uh, and because we were still doing, you know, PT and OT too. I mean, he wasn't just doing the class work. Yeah. Uh, and I was trying all these kind of crazy devices, trying to help his arm get better and improve. You know, you know, being a, I had been his coach when he was little, you know, so it's just like, come on, Austin, we got to do this. We got to do this. We got to do this. And he was a willing participant. You know, he was all vested. He was all in like a true athlete. Uh, wanting, I want to get better. I want to get his, you know, recover as much as I can. It's amazing. So that's what we did. And we did it and did it and did it for a good three, three years. He was, was working on, uh, PT and OT, you know, with me at home after he'd been doing uh, three years of that with the, the outpatient folks that we've been working with at Steps to Recovery. So I mean, we, we kept it up for about six solid years of just working, working, working. You know, you mentioned that it's good to have a purpose to the therapy, right? So you're not just doing the reps. So school became one of the purposes, right? Especially for the, the speech, et cetera. You either you or Austin can answer this. I know your right arm still has a bit of an issue, but otherwise, physically, how do you feel? I feel much better. I use my right arm and hand. So. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. 
Why don't you tell them the things you can do now, though? You can do a lot of things with that arm that you weren't able to do. I can now open and close doors, um, carrying my laundry basket downstairs. Okay. Which moms appreciates. I was going to say, I bet mom appreciates that. (laughs) And wash the dishes. Yeah. (laughs) Wash the dishes. Yep. Mow the lawn. You've shoveled... uh, 16 cubic yards of mulch what? into a wheelbarrow, and he would wheelbarrow it around for me while I was spreading it. Oh, yeah. Now, we, we, we went after everything we could. I mean, he shoveled snow on the driveway. He's been able to ride a bike again. Yeah, and that's all having him Bob using his right arm. Yeah, sure. They all do. Mm-hmm. And uh, so, yeah, uh, he's, he's come quite a long way with that. And push the tires. Oh, yeah. Now, what he's talking about, with, uh, he was working with a trainer. We had a personal trainer that was working with him at O2 Fitness. And he had this big truck, tractor-trailer truck tires, you know. He was flipping tires? He was picking it up. Yeah. They, yeah, he was able to get down, and they had a handholds that they were able to let him get a hold of. But he yeah. you know, up an entire tractor-trailer truck tire, stand up with it, and then you know, almost the whole place to start going into a, you know, plotting, you know, what he was accomplishing. So, cause they kind of knew the story of what was going on there. So. Austin, I know a lot of people that have functional use of both hands. They can't pick up a truck tire. Good for you. That's great. Yeah. So, you know, when you guys sit back and, and we're coming up on Thanksgiving, you know, and several years ago, that's when you guys came home from Atlanta after inpatient, outpatient. So Thanksgiving is probably a pretty meaningful holiday for you all. I'm sure. Yeah. What's next on the horizon? What Austin, what what are the what's the next big hill you want to climb? In the future plans, I still work on my language conversations and understanding. I continue to work on regaining language skills. Now I am working at a coffee shop as a cashier. Very good. Yeah. What's the name of the coffee shop for everybody? Steam Coffee, yeah. Steam Coffee. Is this the one in Cary? Yeah, it's on Academy Street in downtown Cary. And uh, the, the, actually, the two people that started it was one of his SLPs that was working with him, and another really good family friend, and uh, who, who she also has a disability. She lost her vision when she was at UNC, as, okay. as and so she had a real heart uh, to think about starting a business where they could employ people with disabilities. And obviously Austin's story was a, a big motivation for them as well. And so they got this shop up and running. They have like 18 employees of various uh, disabilities, uh, Down syndrome, autism, uh, TBIs like Austin, mm-hmm. wide range. It's, it's been incredible to see the change in their lives to actually have the, the opportunity to have meaningful employment. And sure. And that for a lot of folks who have disabilities, from stroke, you know, don't get to have. Well, and I, I like coffee, so I'm going to make a point to uh, have my next coffee meeting at Esteemed Coffee and Carry. That's wonderful. That'd be great. Chris, I'll, I'll close with you. Any last things you could share with caregivers who are about to venture on this journey, right? And if you could give three things that would help them accelerate their learning or potentially give them some hope, what would they be? Right, right. Well, I guess, I guess the first thing I'll say is, you know, I'm, I'm sorry you, you've gotten put into this position, but in our case, as, as being a parent, I had to step up to the plate. Mm-hmm. The ICU nurse at Duke that we had was was fantastic after our Austin's initial surgery. He is, he set my wife and I down. He says, you know, you two have got to take care of yourself. Because he, he realized that we were going to try to stay with him every moment of every day. 
And he just encouraged us to, you know, let us do our job. He's in good care and you take care of yourself. He said, said, this is going to be a marathon of a lifetime. This is not something that's going to be over in a couple of days, a couple of weeks, even a couple of months. I mean, it's going to continue on for a lifetime, potentially. Uh, You just don't know initially, obviously, at the beginning of that. Right. And so taking good care of yourself, uh, taking time for yourself is very important. Uh, you know, the other thing is uh, just trying to identify uh, with your loved one who's going, what they're going through and understanding what they lost, you know, what that means to them and trying to keep their uh, motivation and their morale up. And then, you know, just celebrating anything and everything that's an improvement, you know, no, no matter how small it may seem to you or to others around you uh, to celebrate it because uh, they're, they're going to build on each other. And there's going to be days when things don't seem like they're going forward. And then you're going to see days where it, it really improves dramatically. And so you just have to kind of celebrate the, those moments when, as they come along. Yeah. You said something right when I asked the question, which is, you know, I'm, I'm sorry you're in this position, right? With just, just a lot of empathy, Chris. And I appreciate the fact that I think that's, that's the great place to start, right? And then taking care of yourself. Absolutely. It, it's difficult when you're, when you're in that caregiver role now, right. you tend to kind of put yourself in the back seat. My wife is wired to be a caregiver. She took care of two ailing parents and a brother with ALS for almost 10 years. And she would come home and I, I could see after there'd be periods of time where she just needed some sort of a break. Right. Right. And then I, I, a really good point to recognize, you know, Austin, what you went through, right? How your life, you're playing soccer one day and then you're not. And, and to recognize that's different than a cancer diagnosis that happens over time, right? I, what I've learned about stroke is it's so sudden mm-hmm. that your memory of normal life is very different than other people might reconcile. So I think it's a great way to to keep to make sure people understand what you know what Austin and his peers are going through and how they perceive things, and then to celebrate those wins, right? Austin, you're the the, the first stroke warrior I've talked to that uh, spent the next seven years going going to college. So. <laughs> I think that is just an inspiration. I think it's such a purposeful recovery and therapy that I wonder if it's not something others should consider. I don't, every stroke is different, right? But having that goal, and I have to say, Austin, your ability to speak is excellent. Yep. You're very clear uh, and very easily understood. It's it's really, it's like, I would listen to you read a textbook. You ought to hear him sing. He sang the national anthem at a Durham Bulls game. Oh, you Uh, sing too? Come on. On Father's Day, this past uh, yeah, this uh, past uh, Father's Day, he sang the national anthem all by himself before a crowd of about four or five thousand people, and you know, it was incredible. Have you guys been up to Liberty for a game? We never made it up there for a soccer game. Uh, yeah, we probably need to do that. I was gonna they they came to town once to I think play NC State, but it didn't work out for us to be able to go see that game. Would you be uh, open if I could uh, arrange a trip? to Liberty to meet the coaching staff and go behind the scenes and see the field and everything. If you'd be open to that, I happen to know the coaching staff there and uh, the coaching staff at, at state. Yeah. I, I had actually reached out to Jeff Otter, I guess, who had been the previous coach. He was actually the coach that had reviewed uh, Austin when he was uh, trying out for the team. And uh, so, you know, he got to see the facilities and everything, but you no, know, we haven't met, met the current, current. Team. Oh, you did get to see the facilities there are, <laughs> yeah, they're, they're stellar. Yeah, also got to graduate, walk across the stage there on, on the field, you know, on the football field. So uh, 
yeah, we've, we've seen how much that school has changed even since we had, uh, he had committed to go there. So it's good for you. Yeah. It's quite, it's quite a facility and, and I'm very happy for you and proud of you, Austin, that you got your degree there and, and, uh, feel part of that community. Wonderful. It's just great. Yeah. Great. Thank you. Thank you both for your time. Um, you know, when we, when we started this program, I think this is the very type of story we had in mind. Yeah. You know, when you think of no plateau, which is Henry's theme here, Austin, I think you define it. I see you doing great things and, uh, you know, whether it's helping at a restaurant, serving coffee or, or, you know, continuing to educate yourself and spreading mulch for your dad and doing laundry for your mom. Come on. <laughs> That's awesome. I think he had something else he wanted to say. What do you want to say? Austin? Please do. One more. Uh, uh, you must decide to believe you can reach your goals and ne- never give up. Wow. That, that, I think that's the key. You had to figure that out for yourself, right? That you wanted to hit those goals and believe in yourself. Wonderful. Yep. Wonderful. Well, thank you guys. I, I believe this is your first podcast. You're professionals. You did a great job. <laughs> well, appreciate that. <laughs> All right. Thanks, everybody. I appreciate everybody tuning into this episode of the No Plateau podcast. We'll put some, uh, maybe some information to follow uh, Austin's journey in some of the show notes and uh, stay tuned. And thanks again, guys. Hey, you're welcome. God bless. God bless you too. Thank you for tuning in to the No Plateau podcast. Please make sure to like and subscribe to stay up to date on more stroke and brain injury recovery stories. The No Plateau podcast is intended to give you an insight into stroke and brain injury survivors' journeys. Any opinions given on this podcast are strictly the individual's, and we do not suggest that you necessarily hold the same viewpoints as anyone on this podcast. This podcast is intended to supplement stroke and brain injury survivors' recovery journey. Therefore, all content affiliated with this podcast is for informational purposes only and is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified health providers with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition. Reliance on any information provided by the No Plateau podcast is solely at your own risk. 